feels so good. Okay, amazing. Love you guys so much. Okay, I want to make the most of our time because it's our last day. What just happened right now? They're not happy. They want more. Oh, that's what's happening right now. I don't know something happened in the tent. I was like, what did I miss? What did I miss? Oh, it's our last day. It's our last session. Man, I'm sorry, guys. Hey, but you know what? We're going to have a great time together. Who's ready for a great time? Okay, so because it's our last session, we're just going to get down to it. You guys ready? Everyone say activation. Activation. You guys know I'm all about activation. This is what I need you to do. We're going to get to your handouts in the second half of this morning. So I'm going to discipline myself to really try try and, and stay on subject so we can make really good use of the handout. I think there's some great revelation in there that's going to help some of you. But this morning, I want to do a continuation on the freedom concepts that we've been hitting. I really want to move past discussion into application. So here's what I need. I need everyone in the room swiftly in a Boaz-like manner. Can I get an amen from my Boazes in the room? There it is. I need you to move swiftly in this manner. I need you to get into pairs. Pairs does not mean three. It does not mean four. And it does not mean by yourself. A pair is how many? So I need you in pairs. Okay. Here's, listen, don't miss my instructions. Really important. Into pairs, I need each pair to have at least one of your Salvation Encounter books. So if everyone does not have your Salvation Encounter book, then it's going to be on you to swiftly find a partner who does have your Salvation Encounter book. Now, real quick, more instructions so everyone lock in on me. Lock in on me. Here we go. I need men with men. Women with women, one exception, one exception. If you're married and your spouse is in the tent, then I need you in your married team. So married teams, if your spouse, listen, if your spouse is not here, then I need you men with men, women with women. Listen, what I'm going to take you through this morning is really critical to your future. Do not disengage and go into text mode in the back. I need you to lock in. We're going to work through skill sets that are going to help you as a leader lead everyone under your care to breakthrough. So this is going to be a how-to morning. So in a second, I'm going to say go swiftly. I need you in pairs, every pair, one salvation encounter, men with men, women with women, exception, married couples, unless your spouse is not here. Are we ready? When you do that, when you're in your pair, do not sit side by side, sit facing each other. Ready, set, go. Thank you. Swiftly. Okay, here we go. Everyone focus in on me, please. Here we go. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would land on us this morning with a real impartation. There would be clarity on the revelation. I pray that as my brother said earlier, that both there would be transformation of the heart and an impartation of our skill sets. In Jesus' name, make us sharp. We thank you that Ecclesiastes says that when the ax is dull, more effort is needed. I pray, God, that you would make each of us sharp in the spirit, that when we lead others to break through, it would be less about effort and more about the sharpness of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Focus in with me, please. The way salvation encounter is written has strategy to it. If you're looking at the manual... As just a collection of modules, there's a lot of value there. You're going to win. But I want to take you into a deeper, there is a why behind the way that it was laid out. Okay? 
So I'm just going to show you, open your, uh, your Bible, open your book to the table of contents, which is on page nine. So turn really quick to the table of contents. Have I been saying, uh, man, I do this every time. Sorry, hang on. Yep, keep going. Bust it open, table of contents. It's not page nine. It is on page, like I said, it's page nine. Thank you so much. Page nine, table of contents. When you're there, say amen. Thank you so much. All right, here we go. There is strategy in what I'm about to say. Don't miss what I'm about to say because what I'm going to lay out for you is my recommendation for how you systematically approach leading your people into freedom. Do not be haphazard with freedom principles. It's, it, it'll kind of work, but it won't really work. There is a logic. There is a method to the madness. Before you check out in the room, and I've done this a lot, so I'm with you. I'm not coming at you. I'm just being truthful. As soon as I say words like methodology and um, uh, uh, systems, a lot of us check out because we go, okay, that's religious. I want to be led of the spirit. Okay, I just want to explain real quick. Religion has nothing to do with being systematic, thorough, or having method to what you're doing. It means activity, absence of heart. You, you just missed what I said. I meet so many 19-year-olds who are saying to me, don't give me any skill sets, don't give me any training, don't tell me how to do it because I want to be a spirit-led burning one. And I say to them, then you have no concept of what it means to be a spirit-led burning one because Genesis to Revelation is full of how-to. If that's your philosophy, then disregard the scripture that says, enter his courts with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Oh, that's a religious system. Don't tell me how to enter into the gate. No, the Bible's telling you, if you want to come into the presence of God, you should increase gratitude. When it becomes religious is when you're saying thank you, but your mind is on Mackie D's. It's not the pattern that makes it religious. It's absence of heart. So really quick, I have to say that or all, everything I'm going to do in the next two hours will go into a file. It's, called, it's a false file called That's Religion, so I don't want it. And what I'm saying, you'll leave unequipped when I'm offering you things that are going to help you. So don't be so afraid of methodology. Methodology is only dangerous when you're absent in your heart. When you put more faith in the method than you do in Jesus working through the method, that's religion. But the method in and of itself is not bad. Are we all tracking right now? So don't be so afraid of someone saying, wait, real quick, let me show you how to do that. Just make sure that whatever you, you do, you're doing it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because in that, the spirit's in it. There's a precursor. How are we doing? Okay, the way that this is written, remember, I'm going to work on this when I get home. I'm going to figure out the broken system on the freedom manuals. But all of you need a freedom manual. You all need a freedom manual. So give me a week. I'll fix the system. And then I need you to all go on and buy a freedom manual. But these are excerpts from the freedom manual written in a specific way. So this is sort of a condensed freedom manual, and there's logic to it. Can I take you through it? God is not absent from logic. He invented logic. Don't be afraid of logic. Just be afraid of logic that lacks power. 
Okay, let me show you this. The whole concept of freedom begins with the gospel. There is no freedom without the gospel. That's why that's important. So before anyone can be set free, they have to be in Christ. Don't sleep on that. Don't take that as obvious. I've been in a lot of deliverance sessions where you're sweating and shouting and going, carrying on, only to find out the person's not in Christ. The greatest deliverance you will ever experience or lead anyone to is the deliverance of salvation. So it will be wise of you if you want to lead your people into salvation, you begin with the gospel. There is no freedom without the gospel, and the gospel is freedom. Freedom is not a separate component of the gospel. The gospel is freedom, and freedom is the gospel. They are one in the same. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That word is sozo. It is one in the same. So if you're preaching gospel, then freedom, you're preaching it incorrectly. The revelation is the gospel is freedom, and freedom comes from the gospel. So everyone say, it starts with the gospel. Your, your small groups, your encounters, if someone is saying, I need to be set free, you need to start with the subject of lordship. If he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. That's Lauren Cunningham. And so, it, oh, is that original? It's the first time you've ever heard that. Lauren Cunningham has been saying that for decades. If he's not lord at, of all, he's not lord at all. So when that young person piles off the van and they say to you, set me free, my first question is, let's talk about lordship. It's the gospel. There will be no freedom without lordship. Lordship comes, then freedom. Everyone say lordship. Lordship. Gospel. Gospel. Freedom. Freedom. Okay, chapter two and three are clean breakup and clean house. Everyone look at me really quick. I'm condensing this. I'm building towards a point. I'm going to have you activate in a minute, so you're going to want to understand this. All clean breakup and clean house are is an allegorical way for you to communicate lordship and repentance to a young generation. They're translating biblical concepts into a language that a 19-year-old Gen Z can get. So the clean breakup just basically uses the allegory of messy relationships with almost not 100% of Gen Z can relate to that conceptually to help them understand I'm coming into full lordship. Okay, that's a clean breakup. Everyone say clean breakup. And then clean house is this idea of freedom that every room in the house belongs to Jesus. When Jesus is Lord of all, he can go into any room. No room is off limits. How are we doing? Okay, then you come into what is freedom. This is why we're doing what we're doing right now. Uh, Don't go there, but on page 24 is what's freedom. It's a very short. This does not cover the freedom manual. It's why you need the freedom manual. Everyone needs the freedom manual. You guys grabbing that? I get no proceeds from that. So I just want you to know, like, there's no benefit for me. The only benefit is for you. Okay? So what is freedom? This is only two pages, but the end of it has a condensed definition of what is freedom. I want you to go right now to page 24, what is freedom? And if you're sharing a book, I want you to both look at it. I think, yeah, it is page 24. You guys see it? When you're on page, actually, we're going to go to, it's uh, page 25. I'm sorry. And then actually, that's just a neat picture of a gal on a rock looking out into the distance. So I just want you to go to page 26. When you get to page 26, everyone say amen. Amen. Okay, 
Page 26 and 27 are a two-page condensed definition of freedom. Okay, all I want you to see is this, the second page, page 27, the very last sentences say this in big giant letters. Freedom is, this is a working definition of what freedom is. Pray this out loud, I'm sorry, say this out loud with me all together, one, two, three, go. Discovering your identity and purpose in Jesus and tearing down every stronghold that opposes your ability to walk in the fullness of that identity and purpose. That is freedom. So if you want to know why I always start with original design, is two basic reasons. In freedom, we always start with who you are in Christ. Why is that? Number one, it inspires you. It shows you the end from the beginning. Why do we do that? Jesus always did that. Go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What was the first thing he usually said to his disciples? He usually had a statement where he casted vision about who they were, and then the training began. So I want to ask you in your leadership of others, are you calling them? Are you inspiring in them into a development process where you're casting vision as to who they are? Or are we just saying you need to be free? So you need to start with original design. Imagine if I just rocked up to you right now and said, you know, I'm looking at your life and it occurs to me you need truckloads of breakthrough. I'm just going to start helping you. I mean, you're kind of inspired, but you're like, man, could you have said hi first and ask what my name was? Do you see what I'm saying? This way, I'm showing you a leadership tool, which is this. We're going to start with that relational credibility of the Lord Jesus loves you. The Lord Jesus is with you. The Lord Jesus believes in you. And let's see how God sees you. And we're going to cast that vision. I believe in you. Jesus believes in you. So now when you move to, is this making sense? Yeah. So now when you move into the breakthrough that you need, you're breaking, don't miss what I'm about to say. This is worth a week. You're breaking through unto something. Without that vision, you're breaking through onto the void of what? So I'm always casting vision. The Lord says this. The Lord says this. The Lord says this. Now let's break through. Why do I do that? Because then when you break through, you're breaking through unto something. So you start with original design. This book does not have an original design chapter in it. You need the? Thank you. You're grabbing it. Here we go. I know I got to fix that for you. Don't let me forget. Okay, the very next chapter is called Joyful Repentance. Someone say amen. amen. There you go. When you say amen, you got to say a little bit of a Sunday morning church zone there. Okay, go to page 32 pages is what we call the four R's. Everyone say the four R's. Okay, the four R's are our weapons that we fight with. I want you to know this. There's not a day that goes by in my life right now that I don't use the four R's. So the four R's for me, they are, man, it's every day. It is bread and butter of just how it's how, literally what I'm about to say. It's going to help you. Four R's every day saves my marriage. Four R's every day keeps me sane. Four R's is absolutely woven into how I raise my children. My kids are 16, 14, and 12. Does that mean I say to my 12-year-old, right now, son, I need you to repeat after me. We're going to do the four R's. No, that is where you get the religion. But I am packing into their lives a philosophy. I'm, I'm always counterintuitively training them what does transformation look like. So I'm always casting for them a vision in a fun, upbeat, positive, dad-like way. How do you do spiritual warfare? My sons don't even know. If you went to my house and said, what are the, 
what are the four R's? My sons would probably look at you funny. But if you ask my sons this, ask my 14-year-old, how do you crush the enemy? And he's like, we repent. So what I'm saying is don't sleep on the four R's and go, yeah, it's a page and a book and you should pray it this way and repeat after me. Kind of good. I want you to see this for a way that you crush the enemy every single day. You're never not doing this. In my community, every day, someone will say, Matt, how do I pray through this? Four R's. Matt, how do I address this? Four R's. Matt, how do I overcome? Four R's. So I want you to know that for me, the four R's, when you have heart in it, it will cut through everything. Everyone say repent. Repent. Receive. Receive. Rebuke. Rebuke. Replace. Okay, I'm about to get you right now. You know where else four R's comes into place? In all of our corporate and private intercessory prayer, we use the four R's every day. There's never a session in intercession I don't use four R's. Why? Because I believe four R's is how you crush the enemy. Are you under the impression you're doing anything else in your intercession times? What did you think that you're doing? You're, you're extending heaven, you're crushing hell. So why would you ever have a prayer set where you're not moving in vicarious intercession? Do you know what vicarious intercession is? Best biblical example of vicarious intercession is Daniel, in my view, who Daniel takes on the sin of his nation because of the condition of their people, and he repents. How many of you have read the book of Daniel? And when Daniel's broken down, and he begins to repent on behalf of his nation because of the sins of his sin and his father's sin. But if you do a study of Daniel, Daniel wasn't guilty. But Daniel doesn't go in intercession and say, God, forgive my nation. God, forgive my fathers. He says, forgive us for what we've done. So are you spending your days in intercession praying on behalf of people? Or do you put yourself in the shoes of the people and vicariously repent, receive, rebuke, replace? So when you're thundering for your nation in intercession, are you lobbing bombs or are you playing the role of an intercessor? What does an intercessor mean? It means you put yourself in the shoes of the person and you're praying on their behalf. Jesus is the greatest intercessor there ever was. Why? Because he came down in human flesh and he, he, uh, he intercedes from where we were. Does that make sense? I feel like this is this going over. So I just want you to see, to me, four hours always gets relegated, but there's every category of my life, four hours, four hours, four hours. If we had a time, we would do a whole day on this, but we don't. Okay, here's where I want to get to. Go back to your table of contents. This is where we started working this week, but we were a little bit out of time, so I'm just, I'm going for it. Once I've established those foundational bricks in whoever I'm leading in their life, this is how I go about freedom. How are we doing? Number one, I always start with injustice. I did a little quick blast on injustice yesterday. Do you guys remember that? How many of you felt that was helpful in giving you practical tools on how to lead someone to break through? Raise your hand. Okay. So um, if you have a, a prophetic gift and an ability to do that, use it. We do all the time. But I want you to know this. My wife does this on the regular. My wife meets with, meets with multiple people a week and will do these breakthrough freedom times. But my wife came to this realization. She goes, everyone I meet with, I'll always say to them, have you ever worked through the freedom manual? Because we tell them to work through the freedom manual. And 99% would go, no. And so then, and it's all good. It's fine. We're not like mad or anything about it. 
But my wife then will spend the next three hours prophetically working with the person to unpack their injustices. And then we had this realization. We just said, here's what I want you to do. Go back to your freedom manual, and this is in your freedom manual, and these three chapters are written in such a way that they go together. I call them the three-strand cord. Okay, it's rejection, unforgiveness, and anger. And they are written in a way to guide you to the revelation of your injustices. They're written in a way to help you identify the lies of the enemy and the patterns you've walked in. And to then actually, it actually has language on how you pray that through. So now what we do is this. I'm trying to show you a leadership skill. Track with me on this. Instead of having someone come brand new who's never tilled the ground, of their own life by going through the book, we'll do this. We'll say, do you want freedom prayer? They'll say, yes. We'll say, go work through all three chapters and call me back as soon as you've done it. Now, I like that because what it does is it right away, now remember, we're not DTS mode, we're in leadership mode, right? So I'm giving you leadership tools. It, uh, breakthrough transformation always goes to those we call are fat, faithful, available, teachable. Breakthrough always goes to those who are what we call fat, faithful, available, teachable. We all need to be more fat. Faithful, available, teachable. So here's why I like what I just said. Don't miss what I'm saying. I know we're having some fun with it, but check this out. If I give you the assignment, can I just show you what this looks like? Am I losing you right now or are you tracking what I'm saying? is if someone comes to me and they go, Matt, I desperately want breakthrough. I desperately want freedom, which happens all the time. And I go, amen. Go back, get the freedom book, and work through rejection, unforgiveness, and anger. In that order. You'd be surprised the percentage of people that never call me back. So I want to ask you the question. How desperate hungry and teachable was the person some of you i'm gonna get you right now you're gonna have a moment some of you don't know it but the lord has inserted barriers in some of your lives to test your own fatness and you're stuck at that hurdle because you're debating do i want to follow through and jump that hurdle because it's inconvenient but I want you to know that freedom and breakthrough usually go, they're inconvenient, and that's not an accident. It's because the Lord's saying, how hard are you willing to come after me? Some of you should ponder right now, what is that action step you've been avoiding or delaying? Is it possible the Lord's the one who put the barrier in front of you, and he's, he's not testing you from an angry place? Can I just give, cast a different vision of that? How many of you have ever been around a family who has a child who's learning to walk? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever observed a parent who's coaching their child to walk, and so they'll walk them by, who's ever seen so you know what I'm saying? They'll put their hands out, the kids hold the hands, and they walk. Can I get an amen? amen? And then how many of you have ever seen the parent, when they discern the moment is right, do you know what I'm saying? What will they do? They'll remove their hands, let go, and they put themselves about a foot out. Who's ever seen this? And they'll, they'll encourage them on. Who's ever seen the moment where a dad goes, come on, you can do it. Reach for me. So some of you avoid God's process of testing you in life because you have an image of God that God's an angry, distant God. 
and he's mad at you. He's not. What he's doing is he's training you to walk so that you can run. And so he puts a barrier in front of you and he goes, I'm with you. You can do this. I believe in you, but reach for me. But you have to decide, will I hop that barrier and reach for dad? Or am I just going to, who's ever seen the child when they see that one foot distance, they just drop down and sit. And I know we're having fun with that, but I think that's a great allegory for us in our development. There are seasons of life where you have the desperation, you're reaching wildly. And then we all go through seasons of life where you just sit down on the job because you're like, come do it for me. So before you can put a barrier in front of anybody else as a leader to say, come on, come on, come on, I'm drawing you in. Come on, come on. You have to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I coming on? Am I getting after it? Oh, was that too much? So I want you to see this order and then we're going to actually work through some of these. You're going to work each other through this because these worksheets are really powerful. They're designed to help you lead someone to breakthrough in a really practical way. Everyone say it's practical. Okay, next chapter is chapter nine, which is fear. It's not an accident that fear comes next. So the number one in our methodology uh, breakthrough we're going after is resolving your injustices. Number two is breaking every category of fear. Why do we go after fear first? Very simple. Fear at the end of the day will threaten your obedience. That's why in Joshua chapter one, he's commanded three times. You are commanded to not be afraid. But it's not just three times. If you go to the end of Deuteronomy, he's commanded in Deuteronomy not to be afraid. And then if you go deeper all the way into chapter 8, he's commanded by the people and by the Lord again. I did a study on this one time, so don't quote me. I'd have to look back through my notes, and I don't have time to do it. I think if you look from Deuteronomy all the way through Joshua, Joshua is directly commanded by God, either through Moses, through God directly, or through the people. He's commanded to have no fear. I think it's either seven or eight times. They say that when God says something to you, it's important. When he repeats himself, it's super important. What do you call it when he says it to you seven or eight times? So I want to say we always go after fear first because fear will threaten your obedience. Does that make sense? So in my process, I go after your injustice, number one. Everyone say injustice. injustice. Number two is I'm going after every category of fear in your life. I'm systematically sniffing out where does fear live in your life and that we are going to challenge every area of fear because if you can get healed from your past pain, if you can say yes to crushing every category of fear, you're moving now into a posture of total activation. Do you see the logic behind that? I'm, I hope you guys are seeing what I'm doing here is I'm saving you a whole bunch of just random shooting in people's lives. And I'm giving you a playbook. If you'll run this play, this will help you systematically. And people are going to come to you and go like, that's so incredible. How did you know to start with my pain? That's so incredible. I'm so afraid. How did you know to go after that? Just tell them the Lord told you. But deep down, you and I will just know that's the play. God heals you from the past, sets you free from fear. And then what's next? Say it again. Why do we go after passivity early in the process? Because you cannot passively break through. Passivity will dictate the cadence of your entire freedom process. So if you're going to passively approach your freedom, you'll never get free. So the number one breakthrough I'm always looking for after fear, and honestly, in my view, fear and passivity are sisters. Where you find one, there's always the other. 
So I'm always looking for the twin breakthrough of fear and passivity. Why did I make you thunder so aggressively the first day? You want to know why? Because I knew that if we spent the week teaching you and you were deactivated, we'd get nowhere. So it would be better to fight all week long for a spirit of activation because then you'll live your life in breakthrough. Or I could fill your head with knowledge, but you remain stuck in fear and passivity, and then we won't go anywhere. Did you, does that make sense? So again, person comes, number one thing, injustice, resolving injustice and healing. Number two, fear and passivity. How are we doing? Okay, next in the process comes shame. Everyone say shame. shame. We always go after shame next in the process. Why? Because at the core of understanding the freedom principles, which to know this, you'll need to get what? Freedom manual, which has a whole chapter on the authority of the believer. The whole freedom paradigm hinges on the revelation that you have the authority of Jesus Christ in you and teaches you how to activate that. Okay, shame, the number one thing it combats in your life is your confidence in your authority in Christ. So the enemy operates in shame in your life to pull the power plug on your authority. Don't, don't raise your hand, but there's somebody in the tent, I know for a fact right now, that is living in a, in a condemnation shame cycle in your life, and you're having a difficult time moving in confidence in your relationship with Jesus. Why? Because the reason the spirit of shame and condemnation has come is to tell you you have no right to the authority. So the enemy's not really so much worried about winning the shame battle. What he is doing is he's winning the authority battle. He's robbing from you your authority in Christ because if you lose confidence in your authority in Christ, it'll set the tone for everything you do. Is this making sense? So you must get, you've got to overcome the shame in someone's life because everything you're thundering with on them in a DTS, are you guys tracking with what I'm saying? I think it's pretty straightforward. But do we not contend with them for all six months to basically get them to believe you have authority, yeah. you have authority. You might not use that word, but is that not what we're trying to get them to do every day? Come to the prayer room and pray. Why? Because when you pray, you have authority. Go preach the gospel because when you preach the gospel, you have authority. Say no to the enemy because when you stand up and say no to the enemy, you have we should get on an airplane and go to the nations and carry the gospel because you have. Authority. Isn't everything we do in an indirect way trying to convince the young DTS or you have? Authority. So if you don't address the shame cycle, they're just getting the power plug pulled on their authority every day, all day. So what will help you is if you know how to systematically set them free from shame then they'll rise up and go, I feel so baptized in confidence in God's love for me, we should get on an airplane and go preach the gospel. And you go, amen, I've been telling you that for six months. Let's rumble. Does that make sense? How are we doing? Okay. And then the last one that this has, and there's more, but to get the more, you're going to have to buy the... Yeah, there you go. Is the self-hatred um, chapter. That's a mamba, I'm just here to tell you. And why should you get that? To me, shame and self-hatred, they're sisters. They always work together. So whenever, and I just think it's so big because with Gen Z, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of you in this room are Gen Z. I'm, a, I'm kind of a, I don't want to tell you my age, but I probably already told you my age. I'm kind of on the borders of uh, Gen X and, Gen, and Millennial. That's where I land. I'm 42. 
But what I would say is this is even in my generation, but for sure in your generation, the experimentation and the lack of boundaries in terms of what's right and wrong has been so deconstructed by the enemy that shame and self-hatred are so deeply intrinsically woven into the fabric of our young people. So you're going to have to address those spirits in their lives to get them into a clear mind to move forward. So you need to know how to systematically do that. What I'm trying to say is this, and and I'm reaching for it, so just give me grace and We'll just trust the Lord will have to do it. What I'm trying to say is view yourself in the image of Christ. He's the great physician, right? How many of you want to go to a doctor when you don't feel well and go, I need help? And they go, okay, hang on. I read about this in a book one time. Just stand by there real quick. Let me just pull this up. Says to give you an injection of this medicine. I've never heard of that. Let me go get someone who knows. How many of you are like, oh, I'm pumped about this physician interaction right now? How many of you are like, I'm good. I will be out leaving now. I'm going to go find a doctor who's done this before. How many of you would say you want to be the kind of doctor that when someone comes to you, you go, oh, I know exactly how to help you because it's not a mystery. How many of you want to go to a doctor and the doctor goes, oh, I don't really know medicine. I didn't think I needed to study medicine, but I love the voice of the Lord. Let me just prophetically seek God for how he's saying to apply medicine to you right now. How many of you like me are like, listen, I love you on Sunday morning, pumped to see you over in the Ohana court, but I'd rather go find any doctor who knows how to use medicine right now. Can I get an amen on that? I feel like we disconnected. Like some of you are like, no, just give me the prophetic person and let them open the medicine cabinet. What I'm trying to say is give yourself to learning the skill sets of freedom because when someone comes to you, then yes, you're moving in the spirit, but you're also offering from a a place that says, I know how to move you from A to B. Do you want breakthrough? All right, so we're gonna do this this morning as an exercise. I want you to go to page 44 and we're actually going to work through, we're gonna attack injustices. Oh. It says 44, but I don't think that's right. Like I said, it's we so weird. Table of contents wrong. Look at that. Discovered something today. Okay. I want you to start on page 33. Remember, the three that go together are rejection, unforgiveness, and anger. Say those with me. Say rejection. rejection. Unforgiveness. unforgiveness. Say anger. anger. This is how you resolve injustice. Okay. So I want you to look in rejection here real quick. Okay, and it's a whole intro page. And then page 35 is called Fruits of Rejection. These are emotional responses. You could also say patterns that grow out of rejection. Is this too practical? Am I going too slow? Is this helpful? I'm totally open. If it's not, we can shift gears. Let me know if this is helpful to get you more equipped. Is this helpful? Okay, let me just give you some examples. How do you, imagine you went to the doctor. When you go to the doctor, what is the first thing they hand you at the window? Paperwork. And what's always involved in the paperwork other than your personal information? Say it. What's wrong? And the way they help identify what's wrong is through a list of what? Questions. Questions, which are? Symptoms. Who said symptoms? Say it out loud. Yes, shout it out. Symptoms. Symptoms. So when you look at the check boxes, Listen, this will help you. This will help you. Don't be the person who looks at the check boxes like a test. It's pass fail test. Because what you'll do is subconsciously disengage and lie to yourself about what's in your life. 
Look at it as a list of symptoms that if you're honest with the Lord about your symptoms, it will help you hone in where your real pain point is at. Does that help somebody right there? Am I the only one who, when you see the check boxes, you automatically go, watch this. I'm not going to check any of them. Okay. So let's look through this. I promise I'm going to turn you loose. I'm trying to show you how the tool works. Okay. So um, this gives you, let's see here really quick, 12 categories of symptoms. Everyone say symptoms. symptoms. These are fruits of rejection. Number one category is nervousness. I talk over others, interrupting them. I fear not being heard or misunderstood. Pause right there. No one's going to get in trouble. How many of you would say, and it's not going to be everybody, but how many would say like, yeah, I actually think I have a bad habit of interrupting and talking over others, or I generically have a fear that I'm not being heard or misunderstood. Raise your hand really high if you have one of those. Super high, super high, super high, super high, super high. Okay, that's a great indicator that you probably have an unresolved category of pain and rejection in your life. How are we doing? Is this too much? It's so quiet right now. I'm not sure what's happening. It's either Friday morning, you know, I want to go home, or it's just like this is cutting too deep. Is anyone getting cut too deep right now? Yeah, okay. Is anybody here tempted that you need to repeat your DTS like I am? No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Okay. Second is this, nervousness. Here we go. I experience nervous physical activity. Did somebody just say yes? <laughs> Including an inability to rest without activity. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you would say in honest truth you're terrible at resting? Raise your hand. That could be an indication that you have unresolved pain in your past. Some of you right away, I can see around the room, some of you are forming alliances around these already. You're like, me too, rest stinks. That's it, let's bond together over our pain, yes. Okay, here we go. Number three, I am impatient. Oh, this is gonna get somebody in the room. I'm impatient with my own personal growth and the growth of others. How many of you are always under a sense that you're behind in your development you want to hurry up and get on with the breakthrough because you feel inherently God would be happier if you moved faster in your development. Raise your hand. High, 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 high. That could be an indication that you have unresolved pain in your past. How are we doing? Do you guys see how the tool works? How many, how many of you just help me because I'm going to raise my hand. How many of you right now are batting a thousand thus far on our symptoms checkbox? Raise your hand really high. Oh, nobody? Wow, okay. How many of you are batting a thousand, but you just lied? Raise your hand really high. Okay, that could be a sign of unrestored pain in your past. Okay, here's what I want you to do is with the person in a second in your group, you're going to read these out loud. Now, here's how I do this. We read them out loud, each taking a turn. Why do we do that? Because the activation of reading out loud is the opposite spirit of passivity. And I don't want you to approach the checklist in a passive way. So everything we do is geared for activation and anti-passivity. So read it out loud back and forth. As you identify, you check the box, you underline, you circle, you put giant exclamation marks. 
However you want to identify that's for you, you do it. If you don't have a book and you're sharing it, you're going to need pen and paper right now. And you're going to make a list of the symptoms. Because when we get to the four R's, guess what you're repenting of? The symptoms. How are we doing? Okay. Next, before I turn you loose, go to the next page. Go to page 36. 36 is more symptoms. Everyone say symptoms. Okay, let's work through these real quick, just as some examples, okay? All right, here we go. Recognizing rejection, page 36. Number one, I usually interpret things that could be either positive or negative as negative. How many of you in the room raised your hand have a negative bent to your life and you always feel in trouble with somebody and you interpret every conversation through the lens of, I think maybe they're mad or upset with me. Raise your hand really high. High, 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 high. Okay. Raise your hand for this. I'm going to get be more specific because it may not be everybody, but some of you for sure this. How many of you, if you're honest, you have a rocky relationship with authority in your life because you always feel you're in trouble, so you're inherently afraid of authority figures in your life, so you come up with crafty ways to avoid authority. Raise your hand really high, 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 high. Okay, so check this out. Now you are the authority, because you're the leader. So how does that compound your problem? So now you have an inherent fear of authority because you're afraid of being in trouble, and now you are the authority. How does that play into your relationship with those who are looking to you? How are we doing? Do you guys see how the tool helps you identify like, oh, snap, I think I have injustice in my life. Is anyone having that realization right now? All right, I won't belabor this. Let's keep on going. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to start with this. So this chapter is only three pages. Read it out loud. Go back and forth uh, sentence by sentence. Then I want you to read out loud the fruits of rejection. Check those boxes. Make that list. And then I want you to go to that third page, which is called recognizing it and work through those. We're going to take here maybe seven or eight minutes. <laughs> Okay, maybe 10, maybe 10, because we got to get to the other sections here. We got to get to the other section. Resist the temptation right now. It's probably not happening to anybody in the tent, but I think it's possible somebody in the tent just went into mental overwhelmness because you're having a revelation that you have some categories to unpack. And so you just, your eyes glazed over and rolled in the back of your head and you're thinking about the beach later today. So resist that temptation. Approach this like a leader. Check it out. Because in a matter of weeks, you're going to have a bunch of humans come off of a bus and look at you and say, help me through my pain. So I'm trying to give you tools to do that. So approach this as a leader. So 10 minutes, out loud, ready, set, go. Okay, let's pause. I know that this really probably is insufficient amount of time. Help me real quick with this short three-page module. How many of you, and this is not a trick question, I'm not going to call you up or anything. How many of you are identifying some patterns of rejection as you're working through this? Raise your hand high if you're identifying that. Okay, awesome, super helpful. Okay, here's the next tool in the tool belt. 
you go to the next chapter, which is chapter seven, which is called unforgiveness. Everyone say unforgiveness. Do you see how we're working backwards from symptoms? Now we're going to go to source. Where is there unforgiveness in the life of the person? Okay. So the unforgiveness chapter here is again, very short. This is condensed. It's only four pages. You have an intro page that's big letters and just reads out loud, kind of sets the tone. Okay, I'm gonna skip that because you're all staff, so I assume you have a thorough foundation of teaching on the fact that forgiveness is commanded. Can we operate it on that? Which is totally insufficient to help anybody from a heart motivation level. I'm just, for time, I'm just trying to move forward. So can we all lock in that we all know we should forgive because the Bible says like 100 times to forgive, okay. Here we go. Go to page 41, where it says diagnosing unforgiveness and then gives you the key to forgiveness is releasing a debt, which is an awesome little explanation allegorically to help give you a leverage point. Why do we give people leverage points on forgiveness? Because forgiving people who have harmed you is extremely difficult. Does that make sense? How many of you have ever had to forgive somebody that harmed you? And if you're honest, it was difficult. It was not easy. And so the, the key to releasing the debt, is, I'm sorry, the key to forgiveness is releasing a debt is a really powerful little paradigm shifter that gives you a leverage point to say yes to step into that place. Because fundamentally, this is really simplistic but deep. Fundamentally, forgiveness hinges on someone's trust and faith in Jesus. When you have high faith, you'll be quick to forgive because you believe that God is a just judge and resolves it in the end. When you have low faith, you'll withhold forgiveness because you believe fundamentally, if I forgive, the person gets away free. And in that model, then Jesus is not really on the throne and he doesn't come through on his promises. So if you need a leverage point, if anyone in the room is saying, honestly, I'm struggling to forgive, and that happens with leaders sometimes. You go, I know I need to tell them to forgive, but if I'm honest, I have two or three people, I'm struggling to forgive. You need a leverage point? I would say this, go back to faith. You're lacking faith in God's ability to see your pain and resolve your pain. When you have high faith that God's a healer and he'll resolve your pain, and not only that, he'll reward you for doing so, you go, let's forgive, let's forgive, let's forgive, let's forgive. When I'm slow to forgive, for me, leverage point, I always go back to, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm not trusting you, Jesus, that you see it, you'll resolve it, and you'll reward it. How are we doing? How do you diagnose unforgiveness? Because nobody raises their hand and goes, I'm excited to have a life of total bitterness. It sounds fun. No, everyone says, we all know the Bible says that bitterness it defiles the whole tree. You know, don't let a root of bitterness grow up. We all can quote that, and yet... I find myself holding grudges. I retreat into isolation from others. Men, we had men night the other night. One of the things I challenged you on was developing interdependent relationships. And I think at one point I asked how many of you would be honest and say you're good at surface level relationships but not great at interdependent deep relationships. Majority of the men raised their hand. It's kind of a man dude. Uh, thing, but I want ladies to know that you do the same as we're great at the banyan tree, but I'm not sure that I trust you to go deep. Okay. What I'm saying is that propensity towards shallowness. Okay. Or a retreating into isolation is a symptom of unforgiveness. How are we doing? You guys okay? 
Remember, we're in leadership mode right now. So some of you are feeling like, oh my gosh, I need help. Just, you're, God's going to help us. But we're I'm going more leadership mode, okay? So we're learning the tool. Sam, you okay? Oh, you were standing up. I didn't know if you wanted to interject something. Okay. Sorry. I had nervousness about authority right there. And I was just like, oh, unforgiveness is going to happen. No, I'm kidding. I was joking. Okay. I erupt in anger or I boil inside. Don't look now. I know everyone wants to say, that's not me. Just want you to know, there's always people in the ecosystem that everybody walks on eggshells around. You want me to say that again? There's always people in the ecosystem that everybody walks on eggshells around because they have a propensity towards that edge. Like if I say the wrong thing, that person gets angry quick. We have them on our staff teams. I'm just, this is a leadership talk, so I'm being honest with you. And so everyone learns to arrange the furniture and manage those relationships in that way. If you're honest, and I won't do it, but if I had you raise your hand, I think you'd be shocked how many hands would go up if I said, how many of you know in your staff circles, you have to have a little bit of a savviness to na na uh, navigate relationships because people have a propensity to get frustrated and everyone knows that. One of my number one things I work with on my young leaders is their moodiness. Should I say that again? The number one, one, not the, but one of the number one things I work on with my young staff is you're all moody. And if you're lying to yourself and saying you're not moody, you're doing that. You're lying to yourself. You are moody and everybody knows you're moody. And it's like a publicly not known thing. And so we are all working around you because we don't know what mood you're in today. Are we up today? Are we down today? Are we angry today? Where are we at? And then everyone learns to work with you in that zone of like, no one's doing this, but literally every relationship is just like, Hey, how, how are we doing today? Are we good? And if you get a sense, don't raise your hand, but how many of you, just give me a wink of your eye, if you have people in your leadership circle that you deal with this with, but you deal with it secretly, then our primary tool is avoidance. So if you're in a good mood, we'll come close. If I discern you're not, I'm going to stay far away. And I have found a lot of times staff teams are built on a philosophy of observe and avoid. I'm going to observe what mood you're in today and either come close or avoid based on that. Do you think it's possible this happens on the earth? And so what I always find is in the human nature is to go, I'm not the moody one. I'm the positive one. So I have found for myself just in my life, just there's a real ease with being dishonest with myself about that. Does that make sense? So I have people that I trust in my life that I say, hey, what, how do I impact the room? I'm not looking for encouragement. It's not an insecurity. It's a leadership skill set to say, I need to have a sense. Do people, people feel I'm a safe person to be around? And then you need one or two trusted people in your life that are solid in the Lord that you know will give you the straight medicine. Who will say like, hey, actually, yeah, everyone feels super safe. I think you're solid. Run forward. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And then you need people in your life who'll say, honestly, dude, you're just a pretty moody individual and people are afraid to be honest or direct with you because you're, they're afraid of you lashing out or punishing with bad moods. How are we doing? That'd be a symptom of unforgiveness. So it'd be great. Like, that's a great exercise. I don't use that at large. I use it with trusted people. 
but I will ask people like, do you see this trait in my life? Is this an area I need to grow? It's such a healthy thing. Periodically, if you're asking this every day, that's a different subject. Don't do that. But it's good periodically, every six months or a year to say, hey, how am I flowing? What's the relationships like? Does that make sense? Okay. I think it got really quiet, so I'm not sure what's happening in the room right now. Is it, are you guys entertaining the possibility that you might be that person in the, in the moodiness equation? Raise your hand if you got even a flash of fear. You're like, nuts, it's me. Raise your hand if that was you right there. <laughs> That's awesome. A lot of times moodiness is not even about anger outbursts, but uh, can I tell you probably the most common form of moodiness that I see in young leaders is negativity. They go into such a negative slump of moodiness that no one can do. Oh, this is going to be so intense. Leadership session. Here it goes. But in truth, it's just very difficult to get anything done in a working relationship because of everything's not said and done in the most detailed, correct way to suit your preferences. Then you're in a six-month slump. And then everyone's working as a community to draw you out of that slump. So none of us are really working to extend the kingdom. We're working to resuscitate you as a leader. And so it's good if you have a propensity towards a negative slump. You need to be self-aware of that. You need to understand what your kryptonite is. What sends you into that negativity? And then you need friends in your life that you trust who can say, man, I love you like crazy. One day, totally get it. Two, I'm bearing with you. Day three, we're all wondering where you're at, and we need you on the wall right now. I need you to get resolve what that is. Let's get in the prayer room. We will get around you. But we've got to overcome and break through because we've got work to do to extend the kingdom. But the number one problem I see, again, I just feel like I'm, oh, I'm losing all my time. I'm sorry, guys. The number one challenge that I see, though, is because the moodiness and the negativity is so deep, nobody can broach the subject because I know that if I broach the subject, I'm going to lose you for two years. I literally know, and it sounds so intense, but I'm telling you I'm not lying before the Lord. And I've been the guy. I'm the kingpin of it, so I'm the guiltiest of all. I really believe that before the Lord. But I have young leaders in my ecosystem that I go, I desperately need you to grow. We need you to grow. But I'm unable to say that to you because I know that if I do, I'll lose you relationally for two years and I'll have to work to bring you back closer. So it's good. It's healthy. If you're in leadership, that's not a DTS medicine. You don't pull that out on a DTS or that's too much. You're nurturing and encouraging and building them up. But when you move into leadership, to me, then I go, that's on the table now. You have to have that crucial conversation to go, can I speak into your life? Is every room available? Is there any room in your life off limits? We need to know that. Because the warfare is just too intense up here. The warfare is real. And we do that. I know that sounds intense, but honestly, when it comes to staffing, if we have people that say, I want to staff, I want to staff, but they have these patterns in our life, there are times I'll have crucial conversations and say, I actually love you so much. I actually want you to be on staff, but I'm not sure putting you on staff is the most loving thing to do for you because the headwinds of adversity are so intense, we might be doing you a disservice, not a service. And then sometimes from that place, you cast a vision to say, do you want to be staff? I want to be staff. Tell me what I got to do. Barrier. Okay, let's see how the faithfulness, availability, and teachability is. 
Number one, I need you to address moodiness. It's okay to have a bad mood. We all have them. But if that's the common, if that's the norm every day, we've got to break through that. Usually starts with unforgiveness and resolving injustice. How are we doing? I think of ways to get even with others who have hurt me. I want you to know you can have a completely spiritual set of skill sets to get even with people. You don't have to be looking to physically harm them. Avoidance is a way of getting even with people. I'm just sticking it to you by not talking to you. I'm avoiding your texts, I'm avoiding your phone calls, and I'm avoiding your emails. Avoiding communication intentionally is a form of punishment, and it's just a way of getting with even with somebody who's offended you. So go back to my speech the other day about good communication with leaders. You guys remember that little pop-off I did? If I have a young staffer who won't communicate, one of my first questions I ask them is, are you hurting in some way? Is there someone we need to forgive? Because you're disengaging from communication, and I'm trying to figure out why that is. How are we doing? Okay, so I want you to take five minutes, and I want you to read through. Man, this is a long section. I want you to do this. I want you to read through just this page. The diagnosing unforgiveness. We're just going to do two or three minutes on these and mark the ones you identify. Okay, pause right there. I know I'm not giving you a lot of time. I promise we're going to put a bow on all this and I'll give you some assignments, okay? How are we doing? Okay, anyone identify potentially um, any symptoms of, uh, was it unforgiveness we just worked through? Yeah. Anyone identify any symptoms there that could be helpful? Okay, awesome, super good. Okay, real quick, I want to highlight this. Now, if you buy the Freedom Manual, there is a section in this that takes you deeper into what are you forgiving. Okay, so this is not in your book, but just give me three minutes to make a detour through here to explain how the tool works. In the chapter in the Freedom Manual, let me just check the chapter name to make sure I say it right. Sorry, it's actually in the Anger chapter, but we're about to do Anger next, and it's not in there, okay? In the anger chapter, and these three work together, so we always have people go through them together, rejection, unforgiveness, and anger. There's a section that actually takes you through potential categories of pain. This is incredibly helpful as a leadership tool because it removes from you the burden to prophetically identify the needle in the haystack. Jack, imagine this. If I just came up to you right now, tell me your name. Ann. That's right. You introduced yourself yesterday. I'm sorry. If I just said... And you're the best. Thanks for being our DTS leader. I just feel like I have so much rage in my life. And I know what it is. It's injustice. But I don't know the injustice. Can you ask God right now what the injustice is? I mean, totally, Anne's going to go for it. But how many of you feel right away like, oh, my gosh, like, okay, of all the human experiences, I'm prophetically dialing in what your pain point is. Does that, can I get an amen that that's just like, yes, if you're like a total prophet, beast mode, amen, go for it. Wield your deal. But here's what I found in my uh, training of my young leaders is it just was too much of an ask for their prophetic skill set for me to say to them, you have 10 people in your small group. I need you to prophetically dial in all of their injustices because nobody has one injustice. There are always patterns of injustice. Like where the injustice, where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about dad? Do you want to talk about mom? Do you want to talk about friends? Do you want to talk about coaches? Do you want to talk about teachers? Do you want to talk about pastors? Do you want to talk about, do you see what I'm saying? So do you get what I'm saying? Like 
Yes, use the prophetic. But we use the prophetic within justice as a fine tuning to close it out. We don't use it as a plow to till up the whole field. It's just too much to put on the person. Does that make sense? But here's what we do. This is where with my leaders, I say, get your freedom manual out and take them through the chapters. And then the leader goes, oh, that's easy. All I do is read the chapter out loud with them. Yes, all you do is read the chapter out loud with them. And let me show you the section. Is this too, is this too, too boring? Here we go. This is out of the freedom manual. So I know you don't have it, but if you'll buy it, you'll have it. I know you guys feel like I get a kickback. I promise I don't get a kickback. I just want you to be equipped, and I literally have no idea how else to do it. It'd be like saying you should know the Bible, but you don't own a Bible. It's not the Bible. I wasn't saying that. I'm saying, like, you got to have the tool to know the tool. That's what I'm saying. Whoa, that was close. Heresy just broke out. Okay, here we go. Page 81 from the Freedom Manual. Can I just give you examples of how the tool works? Here are the instructions. Check all the boxes that apply and add your own thoughts as needed. This will help you discover how to extend forgiveness to your category number one is biological father slash stepfather. Now, what do you do if you have a biological dad and mom was married one time additional? Guess what you have? You got two categories. It's not in your book. I see you guys looking. I said that a minute ago. It's in the freedom manual. It's not in this one. So I'm just telling you how the tool works. The salvation encounter is a condensed version of it. That's why I'm making such a big deal about buying the Yeah. All right, here we go. So listen, it gives you a checklist. So just do this real time. It will help you. So can we do this real time as I read it out loud as potential categories of injustice and forgiveness? for your biological dad and or your stepfather. Here you go. What are the following elements that are present in your relationship with your dad or your stepdad or your stepdads? Number one, exasperation. The overuse of or a faulty form of discipline that left you crushed in your spirit or confused about what you did wrong. Anyone in the room right away just go like, oh, I'm seeing faces, so I'm going to take that as a yes. Number two, control and manipulation. Did he use guilt to get you to obey him? Did he emotionally manipulate you? Number three. Yeah, basically manipulation is leveraging you emotionally to get you to do things for me, either by dishonest means, like I tell you things that I don't mean or I withhold information to motivate you. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I'm not telling you um, in a really upfront, candid way, or I'm not honest, or I'm not consistent. And I leverage that as a way to get obedience. Would you like an example of uh, maybe parental manipulation? <laughs> Would that help, or do you guys feel like it's super obvious? Do you have any parents in the room right now? Yeah, because I know that I've never done this one time. But, like, I'm just trying to give you, like, you guys help me out right now. I'm going to go blank. It happens to me on stages. I'm trying to give you a benign example. I'm trying to stay away from the deep end of the pool so we just don't have anyone to just go down the drink right now. But I'm just trying to give you, like, examples. So can I give you uh, an example of one is I'm all about positive reinforcement. But a lot of times with parents um, of kids who are super young, 
they're unable to get the kids to obey, so everything becomes too much of a rewards-based system. So rewards can be used in a manipulating way, if that makes sense. In other words, I'm not really teaching you right from wrong. I'm just filling you with sugar candy all the time to get you to stop crying. So that would like to be like a really benign example. I'm totally new. I'm just going to go blank. Here would be another form of manipulation. Let me do something that's maybe has a little bit more edge to it. That would be like honest. Is um, I'm pleased with you and I'll reward you when you get straight A's. But if you got all A's and a B plus, now I'm angry with you. And so I'm going to tell you about how you didn't work hard. So that's a manipulative form of motivation because I'm leveraging negative emotions to get you to perform. There's like infinite ways of expressing this. So you guys can understand my conundrum right now. I'm trying to like make up. I'm just trying to give you like, that's probably never happened to anyone here. I'm just trying to give you just examples of ways that manipulation could be done. Oh, can I give you another one? Let me give you one that I think happens in leadership every day, not never in our circles, but just on the earth, on the earth. Can I give you just a broad on the earth? Let's use business, for example. Can I use business? Because we're all sort of detached from the business world because we never do this. But a great example of daily manipulation, emotional manipulation, is this, is insincere encouragement to get people to do something for you. Like, bro, you're the best, Philip. I love you so much, dude. Bro, nobody's got a radical servant heart like you. It's the best. Hey, I need you to clean up all the trash in the tent. Would you be willing to do that? Thank you. Now, is it wrong to encourage? No, it's right to encourage. But how many of you, if you're honest, would say it's easy to give words without heart? And so if you're saying something you're insincere about to get a reaction, that's called emotional manipulation. So I'm always careful with my leaders to say, why is that a big deal for me? I feel like this is going to be a real rabbit trail, so I'm going to pull myself back in a second. But we have a hyper-verbal encouragement culture in circuit riders. You do too. Can I get an amen that we make a big deal about being a verbal blessing? Is that true? You should. It's right. And I'm with that in God. What you need to know is the double edge of that is if you don't train the young leader in heart, they'll wield encouragement to get an outcome. And that's manipulation. So you have to teach sincerity with your words. Does that make sense? Or else I just teach young leaders. Oh, you need them to do that? Just tell them something positive and they'll do it. Well, that's just no different than every guy down the street running a business who just comes in and goes, you're the best team ever, but I need you to sell more this month. And so he's just saying something positive to evoke a response. So that's how it would define manipulation. Yeah. Can I give another example? Yes. Uh, go quick, though, because we got to go. Go. Yeah, yeah. I think another example of this, maybe that a lot of you might resonate with, is that for ladies, that instant encouragement is something that they can get from That's a dynamite example right there, right? Sam, no, I'm so glad you said that. No, that's real. I'm conscientious of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, because you spurred me on. So good for you for being a catalyst, right? That's good leadership. Is I see this. I'm just being real transparent because we're in a leadership course. So I'm just giving you like the real equations. Like we're always pounding on our young guys to be less passive and ask gals out. 
I don't get, there's no kickback there. Nobody's paying me for that. I just really believe you could have an amazing life if you would find a godly woman and say yes. You'll have an amazing life. Dude, your life will be like a billion times better, okay? Marriage in the kingdom is not one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals 50. It's exponential. I felt that was worth the week for somebody right there. Okay, here's the deal. I'm sure that this is going to strike a chord, but maybe not, Sam. In our community, we always make a big deal because it's true about um, marrying up. Yeah. Has there ever been a speech here about it happens? And I'm into it, and I love it, and I give the speeches. Here's the thing, though. This is where a young guy, and it's not because he's evil or nefarious intent. He's just reaching above his pay grade in terms of like, this is an amazing gal. I don't have any prayer life. She's essentially Anna from scriptures. How am I going to get her to be into me? And sometimes the young man will just start saying things that sound right, but everyone's like, bro, you don't live any of that. We all know that. It's like plain as day. So that young man's just swinging for the fences. Anyone ever seen someone out of sincerity swing for the fences? Oh, it's so quiet. So maybe that's never happened before. Never, never mind then. So, yeah, that's just a great example. All right, let's press on. Here we go. Remember, though, we're forgiving dad. That's where we're at right now. I felt like the ladies right now were just like, wait a second. Spidey sense went up, and the guys were like, no, I've never done that. You know, like, wait, what? All right, I'm going to say this. Here's where I challenge the young guys in the room. Is if you're going to go ham to win the gal, and you're going to become the embodiment of every culture that we profess. Because you know that the woman of God is sensitive to the spirit and is watching you. Oh, we got laughter, so something's happening in the room. My thing would be this. Amen, young man, you should do that. But are you willing to do that continually with everybody else? And number two, will you continue to do that if she says no? Or are you only doing it to get her to say yes? Does that make sense? So, man of God, I'm all about you getting buckwild and like, I'm going to become the most free. I'm going to become the most unoffendable. I'm going to become the most radical servant. I'm going to become the craziest worshiper. I'm going to become the ultimate prayer warrior like every guy. I always know when a young man's got his eye on a gal because he shows up yet one day normal. The next day, suddenly, he's, doing, he's living the whole culture <laughs> instantaneously. And I'm like, what happened between Friday and today? It's a Saturday. I mean, what's happened? Instantly, I'm like, so I'll walk up to the young guys. This is true. I'll be like, what's your name? Who, who are we thinking about right now? And all the guys are like, what, what, what? I'm like, bro, bro, come on. You've got a whole new wardrobe. I love that there was like, like that never happens. That totally happens. You never care about style. It's public knowledge. And then you just showed up wearing the ultimate thing you could buy. You took a shower and you got a haircut. Could have been the first time in weeks. And you were the loudest person in the prayer room. Instantly for me, I'm like, what's your name? My challenge to the young man is like, hey, I love all that. That was positive improvements all around. You should take more showers. You should get that haircut. You should be the man of God. But here's my thing. Whomever she is, if it isn't the deal, are you committed to this because you believe it's the culture? Or are you trying to tell, the, are you convincing her you are something you're not? That was probably too much. Okay. Okay, here we go. Forgiving dad. 
Absence of spiritual leadership. Did your father stand watch over the spiritual condition of the home? Or did you have a Christian dad but was completely passive in every form and didn't leave the house? That's a whole form of rejection and pain that you have to work through forgiving dad for because it creates third and fourth order effects in your life where it creates confusion about covering and protection in Jesus and it has all these challenges. Number two, neglect. Did your father spend time with you on a constant basis? Here'd be another form of neglect. Was dad always in the room but emotionally and verbally absent? So I want you to see the freedom manual will take you categorically through potential categories of people's lives. And then there's actually wording in here to lead you through leading them through prayer. So here we go. An example, I just want you to see how helpful, how practical it makes it for you to systematically set all your people free. Lord Jesus, I forgive my father for the sin of fill in the blank. Say here all the sins for which you need to forgive your father and go through it all at one time. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for the sin of unforgiveness toward the Father. Do you see how I'm saying it? Just guides you through. So what if in your small group, you systematically work through every single one of your one-on-ones through this? How would that change your one-on-ones? How would that change your small group? How would that change your school? How would that change your staff? Okay, I'm going to go back to the other deal. Okay, so we're back to salvation encounter. How are we doing right now, you guys? And then I think, was that in anger? No, we didn't do anger. We didn't do anger yet, did we? Okay, so anger in the book here, the actual starting of it is on page 46. Turn there uh, real quick. Page 46 in Salvation Encounter. Make someone check my math. Is it page 46? Okay, here we go. So just like the others, guess what it has on the front end? Symptoms. Someone say symptoms. How about for time, I'll just read a couple of these and we'll just call it good. How are we doing? I feel relatively happy and then I am struck with a sudden mood change. Does anyone ever have sudden mood changes? We talked about moodiness earlier, didn't we? I raise my voice and even yell to communicate something that I am emphatic about. Have any of you ever found yourself raising your voice against somebody for something that's totally not even a big deal? And you catch yourself even going like, why am I so heated up about this? Raise your hand if you've ever had a moment like this. Yeah. Remember one time I was spending time with the Lord? This is a true story before I was married. And I was reading my Bible, worshiping me because the music was on. Total, total glory moment. It was awesome. And a roommate of mine knocked on the door and opened the door and came in and asked me a question. Walks out. I literally stormed into the kitchen after him. Like stormed in. Like it was all your thinking. And I literally was like, never interrupt me when I'm in the presence of God again. I was with the Lord and you just, oh. And I had this whole anger speech about how like, I was in the sacred secret place and he interrupted the spirit and the spirit was quenched for a decade. And my friend literally looked at me and did this. He literally goes, whoa, whoa. He goes, bro, I am so sorry. And I, in that moment, how many of you ever had a moment like that where I was instantaneous, like my face probably just turned beet red. I was so embarrassed and I, and I didn't know how to handle it. So I just turned around and stormed back into my room and shut the door. And so later I had to come back to my friend and say, bro, honestly, I have no idea where that was coming from. And so I pondered that for a couple of days. 
And I came back to my friend and said, hey, I did some homework and I had a revelation. I said, I feel so discouraged in my secret life with the Lord because I don't feel God and I feel afraid that I'm missing the Lord. And I said, when you came in the room, I think it just touched that nerve of fear in my life that somehow I was getting close and I just, I put that on you. So I was able to unwind, like, what was that behind that? Does that make sense? So it's because we understood these dynamics. Here we go. I have an expressed impatience with others that often plays out in exasperation. Why can't you understand? How many of you have ever had a small group moment where you're upset with your small group because they didn't do something you asked? And so you give them a really good front door speech only to find out you never told them what you wanted them to do. Who's ever had a moment like that? Yeah. Oh, did you say something? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Amen. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I often anticipate others, uh, another person's predictable behavior, and I even become angry when I see it fulfilled. Don't raise your hand right now, but some of you will imagine someone doing something, and you feel anger towards them because you think they're going to do it. How many of you have ever had a moment where you have a scenario that plays out in your head and you're frustrated? I don't know what's happening over there, but we're just going to keep going right now. All right, how are we doing? All right, so I'm going to stop there. But the whole point here is that very easy for you to lead someone through these. Here's my assignment for you guys. Can I give you an assignment? And we're pretty much now 13 minutes away from saying amen. So we're out of time for what I was going to do the second half, but I think this was more important. Is that cool? Um, do you guys feel helped in terms of uh, practical equipping to help others through? What if we did this is instead of me trying to cram in this second deal, uh, I gave you a little handout, which is just a summary of two things. It's a summary of a whole um, session from Mike Bickle. It's a 28-part series on the life of David, so 28 hours of teaching. Um, highly recommend you just go actually to his website and listen to his deal. It's way better than a worksheet I could create, right? But um, in addition is some modules, uh, some principles from a leader who's now gone to be with the Lord, but named um, Dr. Robert J. Clinton. And uh, he was a le Christian leadership guru for years, was the head of the leadership and missiology department at Fuller Seminary in Southern California. And so he developed um, these crazy leadership paradigms. But the thing he's most known for is he had a book that went into mass print called The Making of a Leader. Has anyone ever heard of The Making of a Leader? What's that? Reading You're reading it right now. Yeah. Well, there you go. Here's a little summary. It's Colorado Springs. Are you guys reading it? Yeah. Boom. What? It's prophetic. Only God. Let's go. Whoa, swirl. Okay, there it is. <laughs> Let me just tell you this really quick. My story with the book, The Making of the Leader. Can I, can I throw this out to you really quick? My little worksheet will not even scratch the surface. Like, I wouldn't even say it's not even the tip of the iceberg. It's like a recommendation to go check out the tip of the iceberg, okay? He's got so much revelation from scriptures on leadership. I was recommended when I was a young man. I think it was 19 or 20 years old, and someone said, because they knew I was, had a calling to be a leader, they said, get the book, The Making of the Leader, and read it. So I got the book and had two things happen to me. I'm just being really transparent with you. Is that cool? This isn't happening to any of you. Number one, I was completely overwhelmed with something that felt complex. Have any of you had any of that emotion as you're reading the book, Be Honest, Colorado Springs? Raise your hand. You're not in trouble. There is. I'm just being honest with you. It's pure gold, but right away I was instantly overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, process items and double checks and triple checks, and I just was like, what's happening right now? So I got overwhelmed, and I, I 
I uh, mentally retired from it before I even got a chapter in. So don't do that. But here was the real thing is I got deeply offended by the book. This will not happen to any of you. I'm just being honest with you. Here's what offended me was his whole concept of um, seasons and phases in your development really was disruptive to me. Because at 19, I just had this philosophy that I resisted the idea that God works in phases in my life. And I was closer to the finish line than he was proposing that I was. So I just made a mental note that he was wrong. I literally said out loud, this is a religious paradigm, and I threw the book away. Highly recommend you do not do that. Because 10 years later, the Lord knocked on my uh, door, and he goes, hey, you remember the book, The Making of a Leader? I'd like you to buy that again. And now we're going to try this again. Okay? And so... I think that intrinsically, there's a deep feeling in some young leaders, they have this feeling that they're more ready and more equipped than they think they are. Does that make sense? And they're like, no, I'm ready now. Everyone say, I'm ready now. now. And I want to tell you in simplicity, I think you are ready now. You're ready for the assignment that God's giving you now. I also want to have the courage to tell you, I don't think you're necessarily ready for the fullness of what God has for you. And I was so offended by the implication that I wasn't ready that I just disengaged from the training and tried to do it on my own. That led to 10 years of bumps and bruises. And then I circled back and opened the book again. and was like, man, this is some great stuff in here. I wish I could get that decade back. Can I, has anyone else in here ever lost a decade that you're like, I wish I could do that again. So don't be that. So all I did was this, the moment of epiphany came for me was this. Can I bring this full circle on what this is? And then we'll close with Q&A. If you don't have any questions, no big deal. But if you do, I will give space for it. The moment of revelation clicked for me was when I was doing Bickle's Life of David series. His five cities and seasons of life almost, not totally, but completely mirrors Clinton's stages of the leader's development. And I had a whole swirl moment where I went, oh my goodness, Clinton did did not invent seasons and times and development phases. God did. And I was like, maybe I should understand this. And it became really a helpful paradigm for me because here's what I found in general. If you can identify what phase God has you in in your development, it empowers you, number one, to be totally encouraged about God's process in your life rather than discouraged. It it encourages you to be patient and trust God's process that you're right on time. You're where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing. And number three, it fills you with faith that all the things in the future that are promises in your heart, God's going to do them. He will get you there, but to trust God's timing versus feeling the pressure to fulfill all your prophetic dreams tomorrow. When God is saying, I didn't show you the dream so you would carry pressure to fulfill it tomorrow. I just showed you how great the future was. Now relax and trust where you're at now. So go through these. So I just put some stuff in here with some observations to help encourage you along the way. Speech over. If it's not helpful, no worries. Feel free to throw it away and it's all good. Let me close with this. It's, it's, uh, we got eight minutes left. Is that right? Um, any questions on what we've hit today? No, wow. We answer. Oh, yes. <laughs> Say it real loud.
Yeah, I think so. Let me try to answer it, and if I miss it, you just tell me, Matt, you missed it, and we'll try again, okay? Does that sound good? I asked Brian this question one time when I was a younger man. I said, how do I know that I have really forgiven someone? Because I think that's at the core of your question. And I get asked this by young people. I get asked by people all the time. Because everyone goes, I want to forgive. What's really common to me is people in faith, they forgive, but they're not sure if it worked or not. How many of you have ever had a moment where you prayed, you prayed it sincerely, and then you're waiting like, I didn't see any chariots of fire. So did that work or did it not work? Like I'm waiting for something to happen to me. So Brian, I asked Brian once, I go, how do you know you've forgiven? And this was Brian's response to me that for me has been really helpful over the years. So I'll say it, and if it's helpful, amen. If it's not, amen. Is Brian said this, he goes, I always know I've fully forgiven in this moment. When you see the person again, what emotion do you feel towards them? And I felt that was a really powerful telltale sign was when I wasn't in your spirit, let's just do a role play. You hurt me, which I know would never happen. You're such a kind person. But hypothetically, let's say it happened. When I was distant from you and I hadn't seen you in a year, I was pretty neutral because we just weren't around each other. But it was amazing as soon as I saw you, the flood of emotions that I would have. So Brian said this question to me one time. He goes, let's do a role play, Matt. He said, let's say that you're preaching up front. Sorry, not tears. I was, uh, I was just clearing my throat there. Is, he goes, you're preaching up front, and the person with whom you have pain, sorry, he says this, you're preaching up front, and you do a, a ministry altar call. Can you role play this with me? How many of you have done it, ever done an altar call? And you're pumped. People are flooding forward. You're like, we want to lay hands. We're going to get knocked out. It's going to be awesome. Let's go. God's doing it. And he goes, in this role play, the person with whom you have pain appears in the back of the room, and they are coming forward to receive prayer from you. He goes, in that moment, could you bless them with the same intensity and sincerity as everyone else at the altar? And I was, for me, like, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Definitely we're going back to the forgiveness closet was really good. The other side of that that was really helpful for me is I also would remind you that Jesus said on the earth that he goes, when he talked about this, he said, I don't entrust myself to men because I know it's in men's heart. So I also think that forgiveness doesn't mean always entrusting yourself to people. I encourage you to have healthy boundaries. But I would say this about Jesus. Even when he had boundaries, he was deeply loving and meaningfully, meaningfully connected to people in that moment. Can I give you a great example? I think he knew what was about to happen with Judas. But was he disconnected from Judas in the moment or was he loving in that moment? So that's been a helpful gauge for me to go. It doesn't mean this has never happened. But if I'm hurt by Sam... I have found in my life that I can forgive Sam and still be present, loving, and connected, and yet at the same time have wisdom in the boundaries of my relationships. So that would be my best attempt at answering that. Awesome. Yes, ma'am. Real loud. Yeah, the connection between. I just think it doesn't mean necessarily that if you're uh, moody, you're 100% have unforgiveness. It's just one potential symptom of. So I would be less concerned about like, uh, and I I'm, don't presume that you are either of those, but I think you can read that and go, I have mood swings. Nuts, I'm filled with unforgiveness. I don't think that's the point. I would take it in aggregate with all the other symptoms. Does that make sense? I would say as a leadership development, if you have a propensity towards having um, big mood swings, that's a healthy thing to work on is inserting, st inserting stability in your life. In general, why is that a big deal to me for um, leadership development is a steady leader is a trusted leader. 
And a moody leader is uh, people tend to be um, fearful of them because you never know what you're going to get. When you walk in the office, is my leader excited to see me or not excited to see me? Are they in a good mood or not a good mood? So that's a real slow development, but I see that a lot. And my catalytic leaders, I work with them to say, I love your catalytic ways, keep it. But we've got to insert some stability in your life because people are taking their cues from you. So if you're up one day and down the next, then your team follows that rhythm. So I would, if moodiness is the focal point, then I would zero in on that from a developmental standpoint. But in, in the, in the um, category of unforgiveness, it's just more, uh, it can be indicative of something. I don't know if that helps or not. Great question. Yes, ma'am. Are you Yes, I will do my best. But if you feel like I don't cover it, you should add in. Did everyone hear the question? Can we can I speak to the role of feelings? Familiar feelings, negative feelings after you've forgiven and all those things. Is that right? I think for me, and this will be too much of a deep dive, one of the sessions I wanted to do, but we just didn't have time for this week, and it's a whole paradigm. So we, let's, another week down in the future, we'll do it. But as I think you have to, as a leader, um, great leaders are emotionally intelligent. So emotional intelligence, and I have a three-part, three-pronged kind of component here, is emotional intelligence goes with emotional maturity. Does that make sense? So if we dove into that, what I would say to you is that your feelings are really important. And I would never uh, relegate your feelings. I actually think that God creates you with emotions and feelings and that they're designed to serve you well. Here's my comment on feelings is a couple fold, and I'm not sure if I'll hit what you're driving at, so you tell me. Is number one, uh, number one I always try to keep in mind that um, what's driving the train? Is faith driving the train or do my feelings drive the train? And my point would be is this, that God gives you feelings for a purpose, but I always try to remember that my feelings work for me, I don't work for them. And a lot of times young leaders get that reversed and you're a slave to your emotions, whatever they are in the moment, you're just going with it. What I say to young leaders is when you have negative or unhealthy emotions, challenge them and figure out what's at the root of that. Okay, and find a way to um, sanctify and align those with Jesus Christ. I always try to look for, are my feelings and emotions aligned with the feelings and emotions of Jesus? In other words, do I feel about someone what God feels about them? And if I don't, I realign. Do I feel about a circumstance what God feels? If I don't, I realign. Everyone say alignment. alignment. So I always look at my emotions through the, the view of alignment. Last thing I'd say is I always look at my negative emotions as a great, they're a really powerful indicator that something's going on in my life. So I value them deeply, but I resolve them. What I find is that a lot of people value them deeply and live with them. I would say value your negative emotions because they're a warning light on your dash saying you're about to run out of gas. Pull over now, pull over now. Overheat, overheat, overheat. But a lot of young people just go, oh, that's a suggestion. I'm just going to blaze forward and trust God. So I would say the role of emotions are a warning light on your dash. Learn to discern those and go, Lord, what's at the root of that? Realign and then continue to move forward. Final thing I'll say on this is if you are stuck in patterns of consistent negative emotions and you're going to others for help, you're getting freedom in Christ and you're really giving yourself to it and you continue to stay stuck in that, this for me is where I have a tremendous value for professional counseling, Christian counseling, 
And we send people all the time to really talented Christian um, counselors who have a Jesus Christ-centric worldview. And because there are moments I'll say, I'm not equipped to help you, but you need to get help. You can't continue to live this way or I'm doing you a disservice. Does that make sense? So I don't know if I covered that, Crystal, but there's that. Are we out? Yeah, anything you want. Okay. 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 Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I'll answer your question, but I'll just tell you from my perspective, because I'm more of a, uh, you know, my natural bent is more that way. I think at the end of the day, first and foremost, we're all commanded to be evangelists. So just like we're all commanded to pray. But you have some people who have a gift of prayer, and so they're going to have a natural flow to that. But it's not a reason to not pray if that's not, quote, your gift. So I call those gifts versus uh, common grace, Christian grace. So another great example is generosity. As Christians, we're all commanded to be generous, but some have a spiritual gift of generosity. The command is to be generous and enjoy being generous, but some are going to have a supernatural capacity for generosity. So I just would say in simplicity, evangelism is the same. We're all called to love the gospel. We're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to be evangelists, but some are going to have a supernatural grace in doing that. So my honest answer to you would be is if I don't enjoy evangelism, I wouldn't look at it as a personality or a giftedness bent. I would go to the Lord and say, what is in my life that's hindering me from enjoying that activity? And almost always it's, it's related to fear of man, insecurity, and or unbelief. There is some, there is some presence of those in my life. A lot of times I find that people that don't enjoy evangelism, they don't enjoy it because they don't feel they're good at it because they're result-oriented, does that make sense? And so they go, well, when I go out, no one gets saved, therefore it's not fun. But a true soul winner to me is just a fisher of men. They love fishing more than they love the catch. So I would get less connected to results, and I would get more connected with the inherent love of doing what's in the heart of Jesus. Last thing I'd say, and it's such a nugget, but man, it's been so powerful in my life, is the book of Proverbs says that he who wins souls is wise. So what is it about evangelism that heaven and its economy goes, that's wisdom. Wisdom is to be a soul winner. And so for me, when I would say I don't enjoy soul winning right now, I would always have a couple conclusions. Number one, that's a lack of wisdom. And number two, what is it in my life I need to do to realign my values with God's value system of wisdom? Because I want to be a man of wisdom. And so there's all different kinds of expressions of wisdom, but one of them is a soul winner. So I would say no matter what your gift set, no matter your personality, no matter your grace, all of you are called to be wise in many ways, one of which is to be a soul winner, be an evangelist. So good. Thank you so much. Yeah. Love it. I don't know about you guys, but.